So, these two friends are catching up one evening in town and one notices that their friend is looking a little bit deflated and so they ask, are you okay? Like, did you have a bad day at work today? And the other friend replied, oh yeah, it was the worst, absolutely the worst. It was my first day in my new job at the bank and I got fired. No. What happened? Well, I don't see why I got fired for it. I mean, it was all just a big misunderstanding. I'm a bank teller, right? My job is to help customers. Yes. Well, this old lady, she asked me to check her balance. And? Well, so I pushed her. (laughs) And there's your problem. Whatever it is that you put your hand to, it is pretty helpful and important to have a proper grip on the fundamentals of what that job is all about. Now, whether, you're in, whether it's family or whether you're in an orchestra, whether you're on a sporting team or in a workplace, whether you're the one standing up or the one sitting down in a place of learning, what is my role here? What am I here to do? And of course, it's the same for us as Christians and it's the same for us as gatherings of Christians, as churches. What is our role? What does God want His people to do? And the clearer we are on this, on what it is and on what it isn't, the better we will honour the God who so loved us that He sent His one and only Son to die for us. Now today, as you've heard, we've called it our Vision Sunday And what it basically is, just at the beginning of the year, all of the holiday stuff is kind of over and at the beginning of the year, it's helpful to have a fresh look at what we're on about as everything is starting up. And what are we going to be putting our particular focus on to our ministries as we are as a church over the next 12 months? Now, you've already heard from some of the staff in the videos and you're going to hear some more a little bit later. And today's sermon is going to be a little bit different too... Because as we continue our journey through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I want us also to think about how this helps us as we think about our personal goals and our church goals um, through this year. And so, as we're um, only dealing with four verses of Matthew today, but that's no barrier, I can, I can go on. Um, but no, <laughs> now, we're only dealing with four verses from Matthew today, but they're pretty important verses for us and really helpful for us as we do that exercise, especially about understanding our role as Christians in the world. In fact, I'm actually going to boil down these four verses even further to just three words, but I'll tell you what those three words are later. Let's remind ourselves, first of all, of where we are in Matthew, okay? Because it's going to be very important for getting clarity on what these verses today mean. Okay, last week we looked at the famous Beatitudes, do you remember that? Um, The begin the Sermon on the Mount, and and what did we notice about them? Well, we noticed that the things that Jesus commands, or commends, should I say, the values and desires that get a good on you from Him, that meet with God's approval and reward, that they're fundamentally different from the attitudes and the aspirations that are so common in the world around us. They're really different. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching His disciples 
what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And the first thing he does is point out how the priorities of God's kingdom stand in sharp contrast with those of the world around us. In fact, so sharply does Jesus point out that it will contrast, that the difference will result in Jesus' disciples facing ridicule and persecution and abuse. That's how big the clash is going to be. Well, the verses we're looking at today flow straight out of those Beatitudes and where we finish those Beatitudes in that culture clash, a clash of visions, a clash of of kingdoms. Jesus is going to give us two parallel metaphors that work together to describe who Christians are to be in this world. So, let's have a look at the first in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now, on the hand, this, this sounds pretty simple, but let me tell you, there has been a long history of debate on exactly what Jesus is talking about here. How are Jesus' disciples meant to be salt? One particularly academically bent commentary kind of thing on Matthew comes up with 11 possible meanings of salt of the earth, possible significances of salt. But among other things, by the way, I've got some here, so Derek, yeah, although let me tell you, if you're into salt, this is the good stuff, all right? Olson's red gum smoked salt, once you've seen this, you can never go back. Anyway, um, salt's used for a whole bunch of different things. Um, It's used for seasoning food, Olson's red gum smoked sea salt, Um, preserving foods at a time when there was no fruit refrigeration or, or canneries and things like that. It was used as an antiseptic for wounds, you know, saline solution. Uh, In some cases, it was used to fertilise fields and in times of war to do the absolute opposite. You would destroy the land of your enemies so that they couldn't recover and get back by sowing salt into the soil. The Romans used to do that a lot. I was just, can someone close the glass doors there? That would be helpful. So, the Roman army, you might know, often used salt to pay their soldiers salaries of... Of course, that's where the term salary comes from. It comes from the word for salt. In the ancient world, even more than it is today, the thing about to understand about salt is it was one of the staples of human life. It was valuable, it was useful, and in fact, that's partly the point, in fact, significantly the point that Jesus is making here. The world needed salt. It depended on it in a number of different spaces. It was essential. And Jesus' disciples are the salt that the earth needs. But in what way? Well, out of the multiple uses, um, the two most prominent ways that salt was used was as a seasoning and as a preservative. And both are likely to be related to what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. So, how might it be seasoning for the earth? How might we, Jesus' disciples, following on from his original disciples, be its flavour. Later on in Colossians chapter 4 verse 6, Paul says this, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer everyone. Paul is saying, for the sake of the gospel, when you are talking with people around you, and I think particular here, he's referring to when you're engaging with non-Christians around you, 
You need to put care into what you say and how you say it. Make it full of grace, he says. Make make your speech generous. Make it respectful. Essentially, he is saying, make what you say a gift to those who are hearing it. That's what grace is. It's a gift. But also, seasoned with salt. Make it palatable. There's this rabbinic saying, a saying of the rabbis, shake off the salt and throw the meat to the dog. My dog would be very happy with that. Um, But without salt, the meat is unfit for human consumption. It's just a slab of meat. Salt elevates the meat. Paul is saying, make what you say, your answers to people's questions and challenges, something that they can and will want to ruminate on, chew over and savour, rather than just hear it and dismiss it. Make it something worth their hearing. Paul is actually calling for our conversation to be seasoned with wisdom, actually, with wisdom. And perhaps that is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. You bring the wisdom and goodness of the kingdom of heaven to a world that badly needs to hear it. And then there's the use of salt as a preservative. And this is uh, New Testament scholar John Stott's, his preference here. Put bluntly, because of sin, the world is in a state of decay. You want to put that grossly? Putrefaction or something like that, right? And, And God places his people in it like salt into meat, like a preservative, like modelling the values of the kingdom and by doing so, restraining human corruption, putting a different influence in there, showing God's better way. So, like salt on meat, we help prevent the world from perishing. And in a very real way, can I say, for all of the criticisms that the church as a whole has received over the centuries, and often rightly, an increasing number of writers, both Christian and non-Christians alike, have made the case quite compellingly that the bulk of what our Western society today takes for granted as just being good for society, or to be basic human rights that we all get, don't we, actually have their origin completely in the teachings and practice of Jesus and the Apostles. Look, here's the thing, we actually don't need to be overly fixated on which one of those specific minimum uses of salt is the one that Jesus is talking about, because ultimately that would be actually to miss the point of what Jesus is, that Jesus is making. Because if you really think about it, there are a number of ways that if you reflected upon it, you could see how Jesus followers um, could be used like salt in a number of different ways with respect to the world around us. But the main point that Jesus is making is actually a simple one. He's saying that his disciples are like salt for the earth in that we serve an important and essential function in God's dealings with the world. We're needed and we bring something. Interestingly enough, with seasoning and even with salt as a preservative, you don't need buckets of the stuff, do you? It's strong. It stands out. A little goes a long way. You know if it's there, you know if it's not. And if it's not there, 
the result is not good. And that is what Jesus really wants to emphasise here. But if the salt, what does he say? But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And the phrase there, if the salt somehow loses its saltiness, literally reads, if it becomes foolish, if it becomes foolish or, or insipid, if salt somehow lost what is so essential to it, everything that made it good, everything that distinguished it, everything that made it useful, then why on earth would you keep it? How foolish it would be to get some other salt to try and resalt the salt that lost its salt. No, you just chuck the stuff out. Its nature, its saltiness, is also its purpose. And so it is with Christ's disciples. We've been made distinct to be distinct. But there is another aspect to the salt metaphor that I haven't mentioned yet. You would have noticed last week that there is a rich Old Testament heritage behind all of those Beatitudes that we looked at last week that helps us understand them. In the Old Testament, salt has a significance that adds something else to our thinking rather than just going, how did the ancient world use it? Salt was strongly connected to God's covenant with His people. One of the main offerings that was made at the tabernacle, later on at the temple, was what's called the grain offering. Now, the grain offering was an offering that was made to express loyalty to Yahweh, to the Lord. And it appeared to take the form of bread. You wouldn't just bring on a pile of grain, you would make it into, into bread. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 2. But what the people were to do is they were to ensure that they didn't add any honey to it or any yeast to it, but they were told explicitly that they must add salt to it. Salt that would make the offering pleasant to taste, but also stop the offering from perishing before or after it was offered. Just like you don't bring a, a sick lamb, you don't bring unsalted bread. Right? After all, the priests also were to eat what was left of these offerings as their meals. But have a look at the description, this is the important bit that I want you to see from Le Leviticus 2. Season all your grain offerings with salt, do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So I think you get from that, you better put some salt in there, right? But this seems to be a bit more, than, more important, doesn't it, than just merely seasoning or as a preservative. Look at that language again. The salt of the covenant of your God. And this idea finds expression in the book of Numbers as well. Verse 19 of chapter 18. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings, the Israelites, speaking to Aaron at the moment, whatever is sat, set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and your daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. So, did you notice that? So, all of these meats and breads and things that have been set aside after the sacrifice for Aaron and his descendants get described metaphorically as an everlasting covenant of salt. So, as the food set aside was consumed, what did it, how did it function? It served as a, an enduring reminder to both the Lord and His people that like salt, this covenant will not perish, it will not fade. 
Salt is always salt. And the covenant will continue to be the covenant year on year, century on century, pointing to God's enduring faithfulness to the promises that He makes to His people. Later on in this same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. Well, in just the verse before, the last one of the Beatitudes, Jesus spoke of His disciples as following in the line, what, of the Old Testament prophets, who stood firm for the Word of God. When they, them, and to say, you, would be like, you will be like them when you yourselves suffer, suffer for testifying to me. And so perhaps you are the salt of the earth is actually Jesus pointing his disciples as being living testimonies to God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant to his people. That's why they're needed. And they need to keep being that salt, keep pointing to the promises of God, regardless of any pressure that they might face that calls them to, that might dilute them or, or cause them to stay silent about Jesus. And if that's true for salt, well, you get a very similar message in verses 14 to 16 when it comes to light. The second metaphor in our passage is about three times as long, but it's twice as easy to get your head around. You'd be pleased to know. Quite appropriately, when Jesus says to his disciples, you're the light of the world, he's really clear about what he means by it. Unlike all of our wrestling with what's the meaning of salt here, Jesus is up front about what the disciples' light is to be. It's in verse 16 there. It's their good deeds. It's them living out those Beatitudes. It's them living out the kind of righteousness that Jesus is going to describe in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The kind of righteousness that truly reflects what's at the heart of the Kingdom of Heaven. They are to shine and they can't not shine. Like a town built on the top of a hill can't be hidden, Jesus' disciples will shine, right? Because that is their nature. But as it was with salt, light is not just a description of nature either. It's also purpose. Look again at verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Do you notice the intentionality there? Just as absurd as salt losing its saltiness is someone lighting a lamp and sticking a bowl on top of it. This is dumb, right? You just don't do that. That's not why you light lamps. You light them so that the light can be seen and you can see by it. And you do the opposite of hiding it under a bowl, you stick it up on something, you put it up on a stand. That way everyone in the house can benefit from the light and not just be covered by shadows. Jesus' disciples are the light, remember? They're the lamps in that little parable. And so this is Jesus saying, this is why you were lit. This is why I called you into my kingdom to stick you up so that you can be seen. And the Old Testament helps us here as well because it shows who's meant to see the light. It was in our second reading earlier. The hill, now back in Isaiah chapter 60, is Mount Zion, which is around Jerusalem. And the shining city was to be Jerusalem. 
the city of David, the Messiah's city. Through Isaiah, God promises a future where the home of God's people would shine into the whole world's darkness. Look at verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. You see this imagery of a pitch dark of night, and, and God bringing about a new dawn, a new reality of, of, of light and warmth and sun. Isaiah prophesies a time when God's people will shine because the glory of the Lord will light them up for the world to see, for specifically the nations to see. In other words, even back in Isaiah, God's showing that His concern is not just for the people of Israel, but for all the world. By reflecting His own glory onto His people, those nations would see His goodness revealed in them, shining off them in a sense, and be drawn to the Lord themselves. And Jesus says to His disciples, that was about you. You're that city. You're, you're, you're the light of the world. As disciples of the Messiah, you're to shine so the whole world might be attracted by your light that God has given you and glorify God. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, one thing that's interesting here is that the command at the beginning of verse 16 is in the third person, not the second person. Now, for you going, if you're not a grammar person, you're going, well, that's talking about. In other words, um, it reads, let your light shine, not shine your light. Jesus' command is not, and this is where I'm going to have to go against Adrian here. Um, but anyway, Jesus' command is not telling us to turn the light on, like you might turn on your torch. That's not what he's doing here. You see, with, with a torch, the torch doesn't shine. You switch it on, then it shines, right? The command is to our light. Let your light shine. In other words, our light is already there. It must shine. Light must shine. Our job is don't get in the way. Make sure we don't cover our light. Make sure we don't shade it. Now, earlier I said that the message of these four verses could be summed up in three words. Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's their nature and that is their purpose. That is who they are, that's what they need to be. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian... You are one of his disciples too. So what is Jesus saying is a Christian's role in the world? At its simplest, three words, to stand out. To stand out. Salt stands out. It is to be tasted. Light stands out. It is to be, is to be shined 
It's to shine. God's people are to stand out as God's people in this world. That is why God made his people in the first place. To be in a relationship with him? Yes, absolutely. To be forgiven our sin, to have eternal life with him? Yes, absolutely. But in this world, what's our purpose? To stand out as belonging to him. And by so doing, bring him glory. And we bring him glory by standing for Jesus when the world doesn't. And we bring him glory when by standing for Jesus, others come to know Jesus and come to glorify him themselves. And so as we think about what we're meant to be on about, individually and as a church, um, we've tried to put it together this way in our church's mission. I think you can see echoes of this. Um, To glorify God by making fruitful disciples of Christ in ever-increasing numbers. The main point is what God needs to be glorified. How? By making fruitful disciples of Christ in ever-increasing numbers. That's what our church is on about. Everything we do as a church should somehow connect with that. And each year we try to focus on some particular aspect of that mission and seek to develop it and go, what's an area that we particularly perhaps should be working on this year in our ministries? Uh, Now, last year we focused on what it means to be a missional church, you might remember that. In other words, we're a church that understands doesn't mean to be a church that understands that we gather together so that we can spur one another on as we're sent by God into the world to bear witness to Jesus. What does that look like? How can we do that better? And this year our focus is on growing as disciples of Christ. On the way out today, as has already been mentioned, you'll get one of these. Um, Each household can pick up a copy of our uh, annual ministry report and vision. It's report because it's actually, this is getting what, get hand out, this is the report for the AGM and you're getting it a month early, right? Um, And everyone gets it. Um, But this year we'll also be providing an e-version, so that's helpful as well. But I encourage you actually to read through it um, and to pray through it. But what we thought we'd particularly focus on in 2024 is that idea of discipleship, right? What does, it, what does it really mean to understand yourself to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean for children? What's it mean for youth? What, what does it mean for men and women? Singles, marrieds, young adults, retirees, whoever you are, whatever circumstance you're in. How am I to stand out in this world as salt and as light, because I am a disciple of Jesus. And so, as we put some focus thinking on this through the year, as individual Christians and as a church, maybe it's helpful to actually think through four areas of discipleship that prayerfully and by God's grace we might labour to grow in in 2024. Well, the first, first of these is a disciple's attitude. Disciple's attitude. If we're disciples of Christ then he is the master and we are the servants, right? He, he's the teacher, we are the pupils. He takes the lead, where he goes, we follow. There is a reverence and servant mindset that comes from being a disciple. Yes, Jesus lays down his life and he loves us beyond measure and we have the joy of loving him in return. That's descriptive of the relationship. He's modeled to us selflessness, he's shown us what a servant heart looks like. He is our saviour, 
but he's our Lord as well. He makes commands. He gives instructions. He insists on obedience. He calls us to trust him. Even calls us to suffer for him as we seek first his kingdom. We're going to be seeing this the rest of this term as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look up somewhere else, read Luke chapters 9 to about 14, 15 or so, and you will, you will see some very uncompromising stuff from Jesus about what it is to follow him. So can I ask you today, and as you just ponder it, how content are you with being a disciple of Jesus? Where are, are you perhaps struggling in that space? What about Jesus' words or the words of his apostles do you find yourself quick to challenge? Where are you resistant to following his lead? How easy or hard is it for you to understand yourself to be a learner from him? Does anything get in the way with that? Wouldn't it be great if at the end of this year you look back on 2024 And you go, I can really see how God has helped me to delight more and more in the Lordship of Jesus. I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, The second category is a disciple's discipline. Okay, so the words disciple and discipline go together. I'm sure you've worked that out. If you understand yourself to be a disciple of Christ, then there are disciplines that go along with that if you want to grow, right? Look at Paul's encouragement to his young protege, Timothy. He says, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and that is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people and especially of those who believe. Look, some people are great, and you might be one of these, great at at setting up routines and sticking by them and others of us struggle with them. But at some point, if you would say, I'm one of those who do struggle with establishing routines, and let me tell you, I would put myself in that category. Um, If you're like me, you've got to come to terms with the reality that you won't ever grow to be what you aspire to be in any particular area of life if you don't knuckle down and discipline yourself to do what you need to do, whether or not it comes naturally. Right? That's just that's reality and we just need to be awake to it. We don't follow ourselves. We follow Jesus. We are salt and light representing God in the world. Phoning it in as a disciple of Jesus is not worthy of such a high calling. So we need to be devoted to knowing and understanding the Word of God as our Lord Jesus was devoted to it. And we need to be devoted to prayer as our Lord Jesus was devoted to prayer. We need to be committed to regular fellowship with God's people as our Lord Jesus was committed to it. And we need to be conscientious about growing in godliness and faithfulness and about getting rid of sin where we see it and not indulging it like the apostles of Jesus Christ were devoted to doing. God himself is with us by his spirit. He is empowering us, right? 
but we need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit and not resist His work in us to make us shine brighter and to be saltier. That's one of the reasons that Seb's been encouraging us to begin the year, get things started early, set yourself up a good Bible reading and devotional habit. You know, I don't know how to do that, we're being equipped in that, there's material there that's already provided to help you to do that and if you're new with us, please speak to Seb, he would more than happily talk to you about it or anyone else in fact. So, what areas of discipline do you look at your life, Christian discipline and go, I would like to grow in this because I'm a follower of Jesus, I'd like to grow in this. Again, go to the end of 2024 and look back. Wouldn't it be great to be able to look back and see consistent, godly habits in place in areas that you always used to struggle with? How wonderful would that be and liberating? Third category is a disciple's witness. As Jesus makes clear in today's passage, we are to stand out as followers of Jesus in the world. Being salt and light is about being different and being seen to be different. And I think that it's possible that in Western Christianity, we've actually placed too much weight on Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 9 of striving to become all things to all men that I might win some. Let me explain what I mean here. What Paul was speaking of there was removing any non-gospel distinctions that might become a barrier to a sharing with the gospel from people of different backgrounds and cultures. But I actually wonder if we can use that as a convenient pretext for just blending in with the society around us. We're so eager to say to the non-believing world that we're no different from them and then we prove the fact by conforming our behaviours and our attitudes and our values to theirs. And you'll notice there is more and more temptation to do that as our society drifts further and further and further from its Christian moorings. By keeping our faith on the down low and by blending in with the crowd or by throwing brothers and sisters who do stand up for Jesus and the teaching of Scripture under the proverbial bus... If we think, oh, well, they could have been a bit more sensitive in the way they said that, or maybe they could have been a bit more subtle, and so we shrink back and say, I'm not with them. You know, this is seen worst in the tragedy of theologically liberal Christianity, that thinks it is taking a Christian lead when it is merely conforming itself to the world. Its so-called progressiveness is just a Doppler effect lagging a noticeable distance behind the speeding jet plane of Western culture. Oh, is that where we're up to? Is that where we're up to? Let's echo it. And the consequence of their influence has been the sharp decline of most of the world's mainline denominations in the West. As they stop preaching the gospel with all its confronting truths and traded it in for culture-appeasing social action. Where is the church growing, by the way? Where the gospel is being preached. Fearlessly and faithfully. Even if not perfectly. The dominant biblical picture is witness through holiness. Through maintaining a godly distinction from the world. And that is true both in the Old Testament of Israel and the church in the New Testament. 
So much so that we can expect opposition from the world, which, after all, crucified our Saviour. The Saviour that we are disciples of. But we counter such opposition with the undeniable goodness of our deeds, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. They feel like there's got to be something wrong with this, but look, I can't deny what I see. That is the life out of which the gospel truth should be spoken, a holy one. Jesus says, you are salt, be salt. You are light, be light. So how might you grow this year as salt and light? How might we as a church be more effective in bearing a disciple's witness and getting the good news of Jesus out to our friends and neighbours and through our mission partners to the wider world around us? What would we love to look back on at the end of 2024 and see when it comes to being disciples who bear witness? And then the last one is being disciples together. The final aspect of discipleship is the truth that we are disciples with one another. It's not Peter or James who were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It was, it was all of them. It wasn't even just the 12, it was all of those who were following Jesus. And together, it, it, it's, it's all of us. One of, the God, one of God's great gifts to his people is one another. Discipleship is a journey that we walk together. So let me finish by praying for all of us the words of Colossians 3, verses 16 to 17. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to grow as faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus and we want to do it together. This year, may the message of Christ dwell among us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to you with gratitude in our hearts. And whatever we do, whether in word or deed, may we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.